Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest, you know, a guest that is gonna teach us a thing or two. We're gonna be learning a lot about the venture world in Japan. We're gonna be learning also about, you know, how uh, you know, like things really work, you know, in in low-income households. Uh, also, we're gonna be learning about unique you know, recruiting strategies. You name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. Taejun Shin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. So, originally born stateless. So, how is this right. possible, Taejun? All right. Um, so, it's due to complexity of the uh, nationality laws of Japan and Korea. Um, so, my grandparents uh, came from uh, Korea to Japan uh, before the, the World War II. Back then, Korea was part of the Japan Empire. And so they came to Japan as a, the, I mean, Japanese citizen. Um, but after the war, um, they became, they became stateless because the, um, I mean, the, they lost their Japanese nationality. And also there was no country, uh, or no government, um, in the Korea Peninsula. And then they became stateless. And, uh, my parents inherited that status and I did too. So then when you travel, Taejun, like, like, how do you go about it? Because you don't have a passport. That's correct. So um, I have a travel document um, for refugees. Um, in Japan, it's the, my status is stipulated um, the, under the laws of the, uh, for the refugees. So uh, I bring my travel document, which does not have the um, IC tag. So whenever I go to immigration counter, um, the immigration officers almost always um, try to, I mean, scan my travel document, and um, the, nothing happens, and they yeah be, uh, begins to um, ask me tons of questions. Wow! So, and and then with the family, I mean, how was life growing up? I mean, did you have anyone in the family as well that was an entrepreneur, or how how did you got you know that entrepreneurial drive? Oh, the my. Parents are both teachers, so um, I don't think there is any entrepreneur. But oh, by the way, um, this Korean Japanese people, uh, now there are many entrepreneurs. I, I think good example of is Masayoshi Son of SoftBank. Um, uh, I think he also 
um, used to be a stateless and he acquired a Japanese nationality uh, back, uh, I think, maybe 40, 50 years ago because, because the, he needed to study abroad. Um, okay. So um, so all Korean um, Japanese, many Korean Japanese people are quite entrepreneurial in a sense. And in your case, obviously, you did um, a combination of finance and then law. I mean, why law? Oh, law. Okay. Um, so I wanted, originally wanted to be a human rights lawyer. Um, when I was a college student, I thought that, um, the, so my career plan was to be a human rights lawyer and uh, to improve um, the status of the people, um, especially the minorities. Um, but after being involved in the many human rights um, activities, I found that um, so the rule of many countries um, is capitalism, and um, that, that's what I felt. Um, even human rights NGOs um, need to have money to um, run the business or to run the job, not the, to work. So I thought, okay, maybe if the rule of many nations is capitalism, I, I think I should learn it. And I thought maybe um, finance is the, the best industry to learn capitalism. And that's how I was interested in finance industry. Very cool. Very cool. And obviously you ended up as the first job in Morgan Stanley. And yep. here's where you really understand that you're quite good at modeling. Is that oh, right? That, that's correct. The, uh, I mean, um, so I, so, some people called me Excel Ninja. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, back then the, yeah, many people um, used Excel um, to make financial models and the, some models I created became the template uh, for our the, uh, the real estate investment practice. Um, and I also was asked to make um, the, I mean, debt risk management database. And um, to do so, um, I needed to learn how to code. So I learned things uh, by myself and uh, the, I also learned from the IT department people um, of the company. And while at the Morgan Stanley, also you started your NGO, Living in Peace. So what was oh, Living in Peace? Oh yeah. Um. So Living in Peace is an NGO uh, founded in two thousand seven. Um. So the I mean, my original goal was to expand um, equality of opportunity, uh, but I found that um, the I need to learn finance, and I joined Morgan Stanley. But that is a completely different world. So, um, I. Th I wanted to start something meaningful. Um, yeah, sure, this, this investment bank business also is meaningful for sure. Uh, but, you know, social, I mean, the um, enterprise, the social entrepreneurship manner. Um, so this living in peace is doing two things, uh, uh, now doing two, three things. One is microfinance. Second is the supporting children who are under alternative care system, which is like, um, the children's homes, the foster home, the foster parents, whatever. And third thing is the uh, we are also supporting refugee people living in Japan. Got it. And then obviously, you know, after this, you did private equity. So, so why did you think that private equity was a good way to follow, you know, your banking, you know, kind of like experience? Uh, so I thought private equity is uh, some people called uh, some people in japan called private equity an ultimate business so there you have to know management general management 
um, investment for sure. Um, and the, so everything. So the, uh, low tax, the finance. Um, so I thought it's a good place, um, to learn everything, um, to start something by myself. And is there anything there, uh, the, you know, especially during your, your banking years or, or maybe during your private equity years that you understood about what differentiates good companies from bad companies? Oh, good question. Um, um, so if it is in a turnaround situation, um, quality of the management team determines, say, 90% of the performance. Um, that's my rule of thumb, and that's almost always correct. Um, usually, I, I think another thing is maybe the market. Uh, actually, so um, if things are going well or if the macroeconomic situation is um, okay, Many companies um, seem to be great, um, but uh, the there I think the quality or their uh, full potential are revealed in their hardship, and so yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, it's the management team, but um, to a certain extent, I think the macroeconomic situation matters a lot. Got it. So then let's say, let's talk about, you know, obviously now, you know, bringing Gojo to life, you know, your, your company, your, the meaningful business that you've created. So, so tell us about how you come, you know, across the idea and how you brought it to life. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so thanks to this NGO activity, I was invited to summer Davos conference, uh, which is a, uh, so the Davos conference held in summertime, uh, in China in 2012. And uh, I attended the event, and I found that the World Economic Forum um, is like the private sector version of the United Nations. Um, and I felt that in the 21st century, an individual, if um, he or she works very hard, can make uh, the private sector international organization. And the I, I I yeah I wanted to do something like this. And I thought about the the topic that I uh, want to work on, and I thought maybe yeah, financial inclusion is the one I uh, want to work on. So, in two thousand, yeah, I still remember in September two thousand twelve, I determined that okay, I'm going to make the private sector world bank, providing financial access for everyone in the world. So then, so then, what happened next? Um, so my former, um, the organization Unison Capital was quite generous. Um, so John Ehara, uh, the founder of Unison Capital, um, he is the first Asian general partner of Goldman Sachs. And, um, he's, uh, also the very active member of the World Economic Forum. Um, they gave me one year kind of moratorium. So during that period, I could, I mean, work for Unison, and um, the, at the same time, the um, I could prepare for um, the preparation. The, uh, pr- uh, the I could prepare for my startup. So I spent one year at Unison, and in 2014, I started uh, Gojo. So then let's talk about the, because you were talking about the quality of, of the management team. How did you mm-hmm. go about building, you know, the founding team for Gojo? Yeah, um, so... What I 
the now thing is that so this founders um should constitute minimum viable team members um what i meant to say is that um so until we complete say series a or sometimes series b financing it is not easy for the founders to recruit someone um who is better than the founders so um the so we need to um team up with the people um who can the run the business at least for a few years uh with the the original team members only and and i guess uh, also for the people that are listening you know so that they really get it what ended up being the business model of gojo yeah okay so um uh gojo is a little bit uh, unique i i think company it's a holding company of microfinance uh institutions um microfinance institutions are sort of local banks or cooperatives which provide financial services for the for people in developing nations and so we own majority shares of the local companies sometimes we buy existing companies but uh, sometimes we start the companies from scratch okay and how yep. much capital have you guys raised for gojo Hun- roughly 100 million usd so far and i know that uh, you had some trouble raising the money because people were not very educated when it comes to microfinance that's correct um so one um i i think conventional wisdom for investors um i i think is that um you should not invest in something you don't know and unfortunately i uh or fortunately um i studied the company in japan and most japanese investors didn't know microfinance at all so um in the first few years i felt like it's like um trying to sell waters to aliens living on mars or something like that right so then how how did you get to the point where you were i mean you've raised over 100 million so i mean you 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 did well at educating them so how did you go about that Yeah, we raised 15 million USD from angels, um, individuals only. Um, so first three million I raised from my friends and the my former um the former colleagues. Um, they they knew me and uh, they invested in me um without any uh, asking anything. And so we closed his around uh 12 million USD uh with individual investors only. Um. What happened is that um, so the um, my shareholders uh, trusted me, so they um, introduced many other investors to the company. Um, so I, I think I have to explain the background. So Japan's the sort of um, the investors' mind. So most of Japanese investors are under some of um, under parents' companies, which are the japanese big companies so um what they cared uh, about the most i think is a uh, not to make mistakes rather than making a great returns right and making mistakes by investing in um exo- exotic business like microfinance as we um the i mean it means a lot of risks for them So um it is not easy for us to raise capital from uh, institutional investors in the first few years but 
um, individual investors, um, they don't care much about these things. They don't care about the, their, um, the making mistakes or taking risks. So um, they just looked at us, the team, and then they just looked at um, the, what we are doing, and then they invested in us. That's amazing. And then how, how big is the team today? Um, so as a group, we have 3,500 3, people, roughly. Wow, that's a, a lot of people. And I know that you have quite a unique methodology when it comes to recruiting. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, I have, yeah, it's a secret, but um, the, I have my 60 questions um, the, to ask in the interview session. Um, especially um, when I um, interview those who are going to uh, work with me very closely, I ask all these 60 questions. Sometimes it takes two hours. Um, and this is, uh, these questions are completely about um, understanding who the person is. Um, and the, um, it helps me a lot um, to form the corporate culture. Because corporate culture, I believe, is made of two things. One is company's guiding principles, um, so vision, mission, and values. And another, I think, is the people. Um, there should be no exception in terms of the, I mean, value um, alignment. And if there is any one exception, that person um, kind of poison. Um, it is quite contagious. Um, it sometimes kills the corporate, the, the entire corporate culture. So um, I'm very mindful um, of this uh, uh, interview sessions. And out of those 60 questions, which, one, which is the one question that you pay the most attention to the answer that you're going to get? Oh, that's a good question. I'm, um, I think some people might apply for uh, the company, so I'm not going to tell that. But the first question is, um let's say you are on our um the um uh cover page of a magazine and what would be the title and what would be the first paragraph wow and then basically you're waiting to see what they say and what 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 motivates them and drive them is that it that's correct yeah and what is typically the 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 big no-no that you that you would hear um, let's say the, um, uh, I, I think answer itself, I, I don't pay much attention to it, but, um, how they answer and how they think, um, matters more. Um, those questions, I, uh, most of the questions are things that the, the questions that people cannot answer if they don't think uh, if they haven't thought about their life deeply okay. got it so so now shifting gears here i want to ask you a little bit about you know the way that, that you see the environment and then also technology you know being used there so how 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 does say because i know that not a lot of people have smartphones there so so tell us about you know like how you see this say uh, you know low income you know how households and you know how they go about technology and you know, also the, all these types of stuff that, that you're that you're seeing right now. Right. Um, so I, I think most of, of our customers, um, their disposable income per year ranges from, I think, 500 USD to 
2,000, 3,000 per year. I mean, and um, 20% are of the people are illiterate, and the smartphone penetration ratio is still around 30%. It's increasing exponentially, but it it, it is still there. Um, so for typical microfinance customers are ladies, and uh, in our case also, uh, more than 99% of our customers are ladies. Um, uh, so smartphones, so there are some people, some, uh, I mean, pure digital fintech players who are trying to penetrate this um, um, microfinance market in developing nations. Um, it, especially in Asia, I don't know whether that will work. Um, for um, the young people, they own smartphones and uh, they know how to use it. So I, I think um, the young people might be uh, their potential customers. But when it comes to middle-aged or the old people, um, some people do have smartphones, but uh, most of them don't know how to do it, uh, how to use it. I always, whenever I think about our service, I think about my mom. Um, she's in Japan and uh, it has been, I think, almost 10 years since, um, she started using smartphone, but, um, she knows maybe, um, how to use the, maybe she knows how to use up the, maybe three apps only, um, some messaging apps. So that's what it is. And, um, it is not easy for a pure digital player to provide financial service for the low-income households living in rural areas. So I guess, uh, you know, now obviously, you know, like that you guys are executing and, and really building up the business. If I had to ask you, you know, keeping all this in mind, you know, let's say if you were to go to sleep, Heijun, and hmm. you woke up five years later, right? So, I mean, it's a tremendous snooze that, that you've, you know, embarked on. Uh, and you wake up and you wake up in a world where the vision you know, and mission of Goju is fully realized. What does that mm. look like? Oh, so from day one, um, we set up our long-term goal, which is to provide financial service for more than 100 million people in 50 countries by 2030. Um, it's been six years, um, and we are now working in four countries, so I've been zero, uh, 0 0.6 million people. Um, we have grown so far 150%. Uh, per year for the last few years. And if we grow by 70% from now on, um, we'll be able to achieve the target. Very cool. And, and I guess, you know, so you're, you're, you know, part of all these organizations. I mean, we, we've talked about, you know, the World Economic Forum, also Endeavor, you're, you're part of Endeavor too. I want to ask you, what's the, um, how have you seen the venture ecosystem developing in Japan? Um, became much better compared to this 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, um, so ecosystem, I think, is made of um, role model entrepreneurs and uh, investors, and the, I, I think the good networks uh, or the, the talent uh, working for um, uh, startup community, uh, startup companies. Um, 10 years ago, it was very weak. Now, I think it's much better um, compared with the others. And now we have, I think, six or seven unicorns in Japan. And the number is increasing every year. Um, and the in terms of fundraising, 
um, still it's not easy for Japanese startups to have um, 100 million plus round in Japan only. Um, so the once uh, this, a startup grows to that level, um, they tend to tap the global investors based in New York or London or Singapore sometimes. Does that happen at a Series B financing round or what kind of financing cycle would that be? Um, typically, Series A financing amount is, I think, 3 to 10 million. Series B, 10 to 20, 30. Series C, it ranges from, say, 30 to 200. So, Series C. And when you go for the global investors, I mean, I, I am sure that obviously the most sophisticated that the, that you people may have in mind is people in the U.S. So I right. guess uh, what kind of um, what kind of hurdles do you encounter from making that jump from let's say jump uh, Japan to to trying to come here to the U.S. and find investors? Um, one obvious uh, one is obviously language barrier, but um, there are many other um, hurdles. Uh, one is uh, another, I think, is the context. So, um, the, that's uh, actually so. The I'm not the board member of Endeavor Japan, and the, I attended some international selection panels. And what I found is that the almost all the times entrepreneurs find it very difficult to explain the local context. For some panelists, um, uh, the, the business idea doesn't make sense at all. But um, if we understand the local context, um, the some uh, the um, quite a unique um, approach that an entrepreneur is making makes sense. So um, we have to do the same thing. So um, say e-commerce, for example, um, consumer behaviors in Japan and the U.S. I think are different, and we have to explain how, how and why um, it is different. And then um, so we. It is a difficult part because the most of the global investors based in the U.S. have never invested in Japanese startups. Um, so I, I don't know uh, many names which raise the capital from there. Um, but the, that's the challenge that we are facing. Got it. And uh, obviously now, you know, you've been at it for a while. You know, you started Gojo back in 2014. So, I mean, it's, it's been an incredible run you know, full of lessons, ups and downs, you know, successes, failures, I mean, you name it. I guess the question that I'd like to ask you that I typically ask to the guests, you know, that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, perhaps, you know, like back to that moment where you were thinking about launching a business, hmm. what would you tell your younger self? Uh, and what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business? And why, knowing what you know now? Hmm. Yeah, um, so just a week ago, we had a corporate history session where I explained our corporate history. And um, yeah, one of our colleagues asked the same question and I thought of it. Um, I think, um, so we didn't have chief technology officer um, in on, on day one. And that was a mistake uh, because um, in our business plan from day one, um, the the goal is to um, make the um, totally new, uh, innovative microfinance services, which can completely change people's lives. 
And to achieve that, we clearly stated that we are going to use technology, uh, but we didn't have any tech person in our team. That was uh, um, the mistake, um, I would say. And why didn't you have a tech a tech person on the team? Did, did, did you perhaps not find that person? Did Maybe you didn't know that you needed that person or why? Um, I think, so I did have some friends, but um, I thought maybe, so that there is a good quote of Bill Gates. Um, so if you um, automate inefficient business, uh, things will be more inefficient. So um, we we thought we anyway have to improve um, the operation uh, of this microfinance business first, and then we um, apply technology to further um, improve the efficiency of uh, the excellent operation. So we thought that um, the yeah we can hire the tech person after three years, but. Um, the thing is that if we don't have any tech person, um, the, the overall direction of the operational improvement or even the selection of core banking system, for example, um, we made a lot of mistakes, uh, which we could have avoided if we have a tech person in our team. Got it. Got it. And, uh, and I guess uh, for the folks that are listening, Taejun, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, the so our website perhaps um, gojo.co, not .com. Um, it's co. Um, so gojo.co, gojo.co. Um, then if you um, have the uh, our mail address and uh, my mail address is uh, just also simple tejun.shin at gojo.co. So Amazing. just please, yeah, um, the feel free to send me an email. Amazing, Tejun. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.